And we are off and running with episode 9 of Chief End. Uh, it is Tuesday, April, whatever today is. I think the 10th, April 10th. Hope you guys had a nice weekend. Um, yeah, we are, this this particular episode, episode, is, I'm calling it uh, The Devil and Depravity, or The Devil or Depravity. Um, and it's really a continuation of the episode uh, what was it? Seven, I think, where I looked at a Calvinism that leads or, uh, yeah, Calvinism that leads to Arminianism. And I presented the idea that instead of this being a horizontal line, like East and West, where they are a straight line that never touch, um, they actually end up wrapping sort of around, um, a sphere and meet at the bottom point. And I think that is, the more I've thought about that, I think that's actually a pretty, uh, accurate and useful, frame for discussing the theological differences of Arminianism and what I'm starting to come in contact with, which I'm labeling sort of a depressed Calvinism. Um, and I, it was it was became even more apparent this, this last weekend as I was in church and uh, listening to the sermon, and it reminded me back in my non-denominational days at the big mega church how there was an emphasis, I think, more on the devil. Like it was, oh, almost like Bobby Boucher's mom. Like Dick Clark was the devil and Roy Orbison was the devil and Foosball was the devil and Vicki Valancourt was the devil. Um, everything was the devil. And the people in that particular vein of, of Christianity, uh, I think they tended to lean and, and, and fear the devil, and there was a lot of fear um, in their hearts, a lot of fear in how they went about living, because everything was, oh, I'm looking for the devil in every detail. And we talked about that, um, how it, I think, took ultimately trust off of of God, and it kind of warped it around to the southern pole. I don't know why I'm equating the South Pole with trusting man and the North Pole with trusting God. It could be flipped. It's just um, two, two uh, opposing spectrums, if you will, but th th that are not a straight line. Um, so it was a lot of fear about uh, the devil. And hold on one second. I got to grab uh, this book because I'm going to read out of it. Um, I'm going to pause it real quick. Um, I'm back. It stinks now because I forgot on this particular uh, recording app, it actually creates two files. So now I have to go in and splice two files together. Curses. Creating more work for myself because I forgot to grab the stupid book to begin with. Um, oh, the trials of podcasting. I'm suffering tremendously this morning <laughs> under the trials of putting this podcast together. Um, so where was I? Yeah, so there, I think the Arminian position uh, defaulted more towards fearing the world and I, uh, fearing the devil. And I remember um, actually counseling people uh, at the ripe old age of 19 on this particular fear that they had. Oh, the devil's out to get me. He's going to get me. Um, and one way or another, I'm going to find you. I'm going to get you, get you, get you. Sort of that mentality. Like it was almost like predestined that they were just getting pursued by some ravenous beast that they could not uh, escape and not hold off. And they would, you know, lean hard on 
you know, the devil is like a, a roaring lion. You know, he's, he's roaming about seeking whom he may devour. Now, I'm not at all saying that the devil is uh, not real, not powerful. Um, but they were, I think, in, in fearing him um, to, the, to the exclusion of seeing Christ and seeing Christ's protection in that. And, and something that I would always direct people to who were struggling with that particular fear um, was 1 John uh, 4, verse 4. It says, he who is in you, in other words, Christ living in you, uh, is greater than he who is in the world, speaking of the devil. And that's a verse that I would uh, quite frequently point people to. And if you're struggling with that fear today, I would point you to that verse as well. 1 John 4, 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So yes, the scripture is very clear that uh, the devil is real. Um, he seeks to destroy uh and, and no good things are associated with him. Um, but there is scriptural confidence that while that is a sad reality, Christ who dwells in our hearts and, and hopefully richly, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, Paul the Apostle said, um, that, that reality is, is more powerful and and I think that the Arminian side that kind of leans too hard on the, oh, there's a devil under every bush and under every stone, and I'm just doomed to be perpetually tempted and defeated by the devil, uh, is is has blinders on to the glorious reality that Christ is in us and and greater than He who is in the world, and we should take confidence in that. We should take comfort in that. Um, what, what's becoming apparent to me, though, and I've been talking about this the last few episodes, is sort of this depressed Calvinism, which goes so far um, on the depravity side. So hence the title of this being the devil and depravity or the devil or depravity. It goes so hard on the depravity side that it gets so introspective and the eyes of faith are turned inward to see and experience and feel the fallen nature of our hearts. And as I've said, maybe on this podcast, I've definitely said it in, in Sunday school in different settings. I mean, to some degree that's needed. Like I, I, you know, we were talking, there was a group of parents at a parenting class earlier this year at our church and they were talking about, oh, it's so horrible to see your kids struggling with sin. And I raised my hand and, you know, said something to the effect of, you know, not glorying in their sin, not saying, hey, all right, they're, they're, you know, sowing their wild oats. Let's cheer them on in that endeavor. But I did make the comment that, you know, to some degree, that's prerequisite for salvation. And you go, what are you talking about? You know, you have to always wear too tight of collars and, you know, pleated pants and, and, ankle length skirts and you have to, you know, never have an evil thought to be saved. Well, that might work in some very conservative evangelical traditions um, as being sort of the accepted theology. Um, it doesn't work when it comes up in front of the Bible. It definitely doesn't come up when it comes in front of um, the scriptura, as the um, our, our Spanish-speaking brethren would say. Um, they'd probably roll the R a little harder, though, and that's one area that I always failed in in Spanish. I could never roll the R, um, and it probably has something to do with the fact that uh, I am very Anglo, 
um, if you will, um, Scandinavian German, uh, white European Caucasian. Although when I do fill out those demographic forms recently, the last year or so, I just write American. I just check the other box and then I just write American. <laughs> Because that's what, that's what we are, right? We're Americans. We're a melting pot of all kinds of things. So let's just be Americans. Why do we have to carve out all of these uh, clans? It's like clash of clans in reality. Save it for the iPad or the iPhone people. Um, even if you're still playing clash of clans, you're really out of touch though. And you've probably lost sight of reality. Because clash of clans died. According to my kids, probably two years ago. So if you're still on Clash of Clans, come out of your cave, come out of your mom's basement, and realize that there's other games that have since taken over the minds and souls of people like Pokemon, which is now dead. And I think a new thing called Fortnite, which is uh, probably more powerful than heroin on some fronts. Um, and if you are struggling with a heroin addiction, I don't mean to belittle it. I know that that's very powerful as well. Uh, but Fortnite's a, Fortnite's a doozy. It's a doozy, which is why I have... Our packed, um, O-U-R, packed, P-A-C-T apps installed on all of our kids' phones, and I allot them 60 minutes of unfettered uh, game time. And then once that 60 minutes hits, boom, the apps tightens down the reins, and then they have to throw a teenage fit and break dishes and run out in the backyard screaming at how evil I am. Uh, they don't really do that, although in their heart I think they might. Um, so yeah. Clash of Clans. Why? Oh yeah, so Americans. Why? Rolling R's. Rolling R's. I was rolling an R for... Oh, the Scriptura. Yes, the, the Scripture. And I still didn't roll the R. Um, yeah, so that whole, like, we have to be perfect thing um, and, and, you know, look like we're uh, super duper saved in order to be Christian. Um, I was saying, hey that's not really accurate with the scripture because Christ did say he came into the world to save sinners. Paul the Apostle touched on this, that, you know, hey, I, he came to save sinners of whom I am chief. So it's almost a prerequisite to feel your depravity, I think, in order to be saved. Um, if you come to the Lord and you're like, I don't need any help. Yo, I've got, I've got this. I'm, I'm a hunted. I am a hunted. Uh, I'm set. I'm lit. I'm on, I'm going to say I'm on fleek, but even that's like Clash of Clans era. Uh, you know, you, you, you come to him with sort of that, I've got everything in place. Well, that's not really why he came. He said he came to save sinners. So feeling our depravity is a prerequisite. I'm talking like Daffy Duck now. Um, but the depressed Calvinism, I think, feels the depravity. It, it, it feels the depravity, and then it begins to fear the depravity. It be, turns inward. The eyes turn away from Christ. They turn inward, and they feel a depravity under every stone. They feel a depravity in every thought, in every look. Oh, I brushed my teeth this morning, and I, oh, I was vain because I wanted clean white teeth. And, oh, I got up, and I had a coffee, and I took too much pride in in the taste of my wonderful French press skills. And, oh, I just am, you know, I was doing a work thing and I just, oh, I wanted to take a little bit of credit for my expertise. And, oh, I'm such, woe is me. Oh, crush me under this burden of sin. Um, and it gets so ridiculous um, to the point that you can't even make a decision 
without feeling some sort of weight of, oh, my inherent sin, cursed is me, because everything I do is tainted with this depraved, sinful, God-hating nature. I mean, get over yourself just a tiny bit, like maybe just a tiny bit. Um, so not to, not to go all alliteration on the D's, but devil and depravity on the one hand, everybody's, there's a big chunk of Christianity fearing the devil and looking for the devil under every bush and trembling that he's going to, you know, jump out and headshot him or whack him in the knees, you know, like Nancy Kerrigan, you'll be screaming, why, why, uh, and then on the other side, you have a group of Christians that are like totally freaked out of depravity and is leading them into like near suicidal land. Um, so I think we are well served <laughs> um, if we avoid both extremes. And so for the devil crowd, as I as I previously quoted 1 John 4, 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. As I was reading the scripture this weekend, 1 John 3.20 jumped out at me as being a remedy for the crowd who is too entrenched in the depravity side. Um, and it says, 1 John 3.20 says, For whenever our heart condemns us, which is pretty much the finding a depraved motivation in everything that we do, Oh, I slept five minutes too long. Oh, my heart loves leisure. God have mercy. I mean, really? Seriously, just stop. Um, for whenever our heart condemns us. So if that's you if, you, if you sleep an extra five minutes on that snooze button and you wake up and you're like, oh, I love leisure. Oh, woe is me. You need 1 John 3.20 to come bursting into your stinking warped view and say for... Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So the answer to all of this stuff is not to focus on the power of the devil to the exclusion of Christ, and it's not to focus on our depraved nature to the exclusion of Christ. The purpose of the devil in depravity, if I can preach for a second, is to point us to Christ. We're down at the Antarctic Pole with both extremes. We're down at trusting man. We're down at fearing the devil, fearing our hearts. And both of those, God is saying, they come into play to point you back to the North Pole where Santa Claus is. No, I'm kidding. Where, where Christ is. So if you're in one of these extremes, and I'm, there's, a good, there's a good chance you are because... Um, Man doesn't seem to be very good at uh, balancing things, I've noticed. You know, we, we love to latch on to something and then just, you know, take it off the rails as fast as we can. And I think it's why Spurgeon said quite wisely that the train tracks to heaven uh, make, and this is really going to offend John MacArthurites, um, but he said the train tracks to heaven one rail is man's responsibility. One rail is God's sovereignty. And you go, what? Oh no, you're not a five-point Calvinist. That's not what I'm saying at all. He's saying that there's some mystery in that, which is another rabbit trail I'll, I'll shoot down for a second. Can we not allow for some mystery with the Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and billions and billions and billions of Milky Way-esque equivalents? Can we not allow for some mystery with him? Why are we so arrogant 
that we think our theological system can button down God on every single specific. Again, get over yourself. Stop taking yourself so seriously. Stop pledging allegiance to your system to the degree that you can't allow any mystery. And no, I'm not saying that I'm Rob Bell and, oh, we don't know anything and we just must be guided by our feelings and the Arroyo Borealis. I'm not saying that, all right? Um, I'm saying that Spurgeon says that the railway to heaven is one track is man's responsibility, i.e. man's responsibility. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> i.e. is supposed to be like a another elaboration, not a direct quote exactly to the T of the previous word spoken, but I'll take it this time. And the other track is God's sovereignty. And there's some mystery there. There is mystery that God is absolutely sovereign over the hearts and souls and minds and affections of men, yet he will hold mankind responsible. Like, I don't understand that. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but there's mystery. I will allow for some mystery. Um, and I think that Christendom, especially in America, would be, uh, I want to say well-served again, but I feel like I need to get a behooved off my chest. Uh, Christendom, it would behoove. <laughs> Can you put behooved in a past tense? It would behoove. Christendom would be behooved. It's a good word, behooved. I like that one. Um, that was good. I felt good to get behooved off my chest. Um, behooved. It's almost like a... What does behooved mean? Because when I when I think of that word, it makes me think of like cow's hooves or horse hooves. Maybe maybe back in the medieval times, maybe they just lined you up and ran roughshod over you as a serf or something. You were a peasant in the field and they were like, it would behoove you. And then they charge and they just run roughshod over you with cow's feet, cow's hooves or horse hooves. Who knows where behooved came from? I could always go down, as I've said before, to the library and pull up some microfilm and search the uh, etymology. Is etymology? Epitymology? Something like that, I think, is the history of a word. Oh, so much random knowledge floating in the 7% of my brain that actually gets used. Um, <laughs> I could actually see some pompous medieval lord turning behoove into... If behooved actually derived from uh, lords running roughshod over serfs who disagreed with him, and then have the arrogance in his UK accent to be like, it behooved them um, after they're bloody and broken. Anyway, I needed to get a behooved off my chest was the point of that whole tangent. Um, so it would behoove the church to allow for some mystery, and it would behoove... <laughs> All right, I need to stop with that word. Um, it would behoove me to stop using behooved at the moment. Um, okay, that's too much. Too much, I apologize. Uh, it would benefit the church for the crowd that fears the devil to the exclusion of looking and trusting Christ and his strength to look to 1 John 4, 4. It would benefit this segment of the church that is swamped with their depravity and feeling a depraved uh, motivation in everything that they do to turn away from that cesspool and look to Christ and his strength. And 
Spurgeon said that there were two books he read on an annual basis. One was the Bible in its entirety, and the other one was Pilgrim's Progress. And I have tried to make that a rule in my Christian life because, I mean, if Spurgeon did it, why not? Um, so, yeah, that, that's terrible logic. I mean, Furtick does a lot of stuff, and I don't follow him either, but he's a clown. Um, anyway... <laughs> Which makes me thinks think of thinks it makes me thinks it makes me think of a frosted tip bro uh, comment that was texted to me this week in relation to um, Furtick, uh, which made me laugh. So Spurgeon said he read the Bible every year and he read Pilgrim's Progress every year, and I think that that's a pretty good recipe for sound, solid Christian living. And if you have not read Pilgrim's Progress, you need to get a copy and dig into it. They have abridged versions and modern language versions. I don't like them. I like reading all the haths and E-T-H words and all those things. I like the Old English. Um, I've read it for so long that I actually feel like I'm missing out if I'm reading something from that era and it doesn't have that. Like when they're like, oh, John Calvin, updated language. I'm like, no thanks. Um, is there just something about those old words with like 14 syllables that you need to get the meaning driven home? Um, but anyway, Pilgrim's Progress, if you, ha if you haven't read it, get a copy. Uh, but at the beginning, it, for those that have read it, you'll remember, and I, I, I probably am mispronouncing this word as I do a lot of words, but the slough, the slow of despond, whatever this thing, it's basically a swamp of despond. And he gets stuck in it. He gets mired in it. And I think that's where a lot of depressed um, Calvinists are hanging out. They are trapped in the swamp of despond because they see their depravity and they don't have any way to get out of it. And if you remember in Pilgrim's Progress, it was Evangelist who came along and said, don't you see? Don't you see the steps out of this swamp of despond? Don't you see them? And Christian said, no, where? And he said, look, they're right there. They're the steps of truth. And then he saw with eyes of faith and there was scriptural truth steps in this metaphor, uh, analogy, whatever this thing is, um, to climb out of the swamp. And so the steps were always there, but he, he did not have eyes of faith to see them. So I think whether you're, you're burdened with the devil hunting you down, or you're burdened with the feeling of your depraved nature, both are very powerful, strong realities. I'm not denying either. I'm simply saying that when we lock into one or the other, and God forbid both, holy smokes, I couldn't imagine if a Christian locked into both, they would step in front of a bus. Um, so before you step in front of a bus that's moving, presumably, um, you need to turn your eyes of faith Ask the Lord, perhaps, to give you eyes of faith to see the steps of truth out of that despond, that swamp of despond, and to climb out. And it's not going to be your effort. It's not going to be your piety. It's not going to be, um, oh, I'm just pulling myself up by my bootstraps. <laughs> it's not voting for a particular political party. It's not going to be any of that stuff. It's going to be turning your eyes away from either your unbalanced view of the devil or your unbalanced view of your depravity and turning them, turning them to Christ and realizing the scripture says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. So it's a win-win. In both things, God's greater. 
And in both things, God is greater. And I'll say it a third time. In both things, God is greater. And that is the strength for the soul. That's the strength for the Christian journey is God is greater. Think about the book of James. He says, but he gives more grace. He's going through this stuff of, oh, wow, we really are depraved, but he gives more grace. And wow, I don't know why we can't lock in on that. I don't, I mean, I, I think I do because previously in previous episodes, um, I've talked about obviously the allegiance to systems. And, and I think that, um, I mean, I don't want to go too much on hypothesizing here and assigning bad motivations to people, uh, <clears throat> pastors, <clears throat> preneurs, <clears throat> uh, mini messiahs. Uh, but let's be honest, fear is a very powerful control device. Um, fear is an exceptionally powerful control device. Uh, look at look at um, diabolical regimes throughout the years. Nazi Germany, uh, North Korea, Venezuela. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we can point to um, that would demonstrate, historically speaking, that fear is a very powerful controlling device. And not to hypothesize too much ill intent on the part of a lot of these pastors, but if their system promotes a fear, there is built-in control in that promotion of that system. And I don't know, you know, I'm sure there are pastors that specifically promote fear in order to control. I mean, I'd be dumb and naive if I didn't think that. How many of them do that on purpose? I don't know. Um, perhaps they have just fallen off the rails one side or the other on fearing the devil too much or fearing the depraved nature too much. Um, but the bottom line is that both of those are driven by fear. And fear is a very, very, very powerful controlling device. And that's why I went and paused this thing and got this book. Um, it's my latest book, which you can pick up on my website for a minimum suggested donation of only $50. Um, no, I'm kidding. It's not my book. I only read people that are dead. So this guy's long gone. He is worm fodder. They've been having a worm party on his remains for over a hundred years. In fact, I'd be surprised if there's even any remains left. It's probably just his remains into a worm party and then those worms got into another worm party and so on and so forth until it's all just like fertile soil and there's probably all kinds of flowers growing around his grave. Um, Especially if you died like pre-1900. I mean, those coffins were not that tight. I mean, now it wouldn't surprise me if in 2000 years, if, you know, mankind was still trucking along, uh, that, you know, the caskets now are like airtight, they're sealed. They, I mean, it'd probably take a while for some worms to bust through and uh, have a worm party. But if you died pre-1900, I mean, that's like a rickety old shed. Like, it's a couple boards just to cover up your rigor mortis so you don't terrify the children at the uh, at the open casket service. Well, I guess it wouldn't be open casket because already nailed down. But, I mean, that wood rotted in probably a couple weeks. I mean, there's termites, bugs, all kinds of stuff. It, it's a party, and it's a quick one. My point in saying all of that is that he's dead, so he doesn't have any skin left in the game, quite literally. <laughs> He has no ego to be promoted. Um, he has no uh, books to sell or conference tickets to sling. So I like reading dead people. Um, I see dead people. I read dead people. 
creepy. Throw a little bit of X-Files music in the background and let that give you some goosebumps. Um, April 11. So this is Morning Thoughts. This is my boy. My boy, Octavius Winslow. Um, I like him a lot because he's reformed, but he definitely... His weakness, if he had one, is that he didn't promote a culture of fear. So in my estimation, he didn't have a weakness from that standpoint. Um, and he was constantly, constantly pointing people, come away from your weak faith, come away from your supposed declarations of allegiance to whatever, and turn your eyes of faith to where the eyes of God the Father repose, namely on the finished work of Christ. And that's almost a verbatim quote from one of his sermons that he delivered at the grand opening of uh, Charles Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle, which I'm sure was live streamed. Um, to all of their multi-site campuses around London um, via megaphone and tin cans with rope strung between them. What did he say? Uh, it sounded like he said. And then by the time it gets down the chain, it's a completely butchered sermon. But that's why they probably didn't do multi-site back in the day. It, was, it would have been a bad game of telephone. Um, April 11th, he has a morning devotion slash thought on this particular verse which just so happens to be out of 1 John. Coinkydink? I think not. Um, which I think is a reference to The Incredibles. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Mr. What's-His-Name. Um, they know the inner workings. All of your clients know the inner workings of InsuraCare. Coincidence? I think not. At least I think that's what it was. Um, Incredibles 2 comes out this summer, which I'm looking forward to. So there's a side note for you. Um, first John 4.18, he says, there is no fear. He doesn't say this. The scripture says this quote, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth. This is not the updated language version. Casteth out fear because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. So that's first John 4.18. And I'll just read this thing because why not? It's better than any rambling nonsense that's coming out of my mouth right now. So buckle in for a page and a half of Octavius Winslow. Who that has felt it will deny that, quote, fear hath torment. The legal fear of death, of judgment, and of condemnation. The fear engendered by a slavish view of the Lord's commandments. A defective view of the believer's relation to God imperfect conceptions of the finished work of Christ, unsettled apprehensions of the great fact of acceptance, yielding to the power of unbelief, the retaining of guilt upon the conscience, or the influence of any concealed sin will fill the heart with the torment of fear. Some of the most eminent of God's people have thus been afflicted. This was Job's experience, quote, I am afraid of all my sorrows, Job 9.28. Quote, even when I remember I am afraid, and trembling taketh hold of my flesh, Job 21.6. Quote, when I considered him, I am afraid of him, Job 23.15. So also with David, quote, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee, Psalm 56.3. Or, my flesh trembleth for fear of thee, I am afraid of thy judgments, Psalm 119.120. But, Winslow says, perfect love casteth out fear. He that feareth is not perfected in the love of Christ. 
The design and tendency of the love of Jesus shed abroad in the heart is to lift the soul out of all its, quote, bondage through fear of death and its ultimate consequences and soothe it to rest on that glorious declaration triumphing triumphing in which many have gone to glory. Quote, there is thou therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1 tells us. See the blessed spring from whence flows a believer's victory over all bondage of fear. The spring flows from Jesus, not from the believer's experience of the truth, not from evidence of his acceptance and adoption, not from the work of the Spirit in his heart, blessed as all that is, but from and out of and away from himself to look to Jesus. The blood of righteousness, the blood and righteousness of Christ, based upon the infinite dignity and glory of his person, and wrought into the experience of the believer by the Holy Ghost, expels from the heart all fear of death and of judgment, and it fills it with perfect peace. And we're not done. I'll keep going so you can get back to Clash of Clans in a second. O thou of fearful heart, why these anxious doubts? Why these tormenting fears? Why this shrinking from the thought of death? Why these distant, hard, and unkind thoughts of God? Why this prison? Why this chain? Thou art not perfected in the love of Jesus, for perfect love casteth out fear. Thou art not perfected in the great truth that Jesus is mighty to save, that he died for a poor sinner like yourself, that his death was a perfect satisfaction to divine justice, and that without a single meritorious work of thine own, just as thou art, poor, empty, vile, worthless, unworthy, thou art welcome to the rich provision of sovereign grace and dying love, and not the sovereign grace E.J. Mahaney nonsense, actual sovereign grace pre, when it was a ministry name, Uh, The simple belief of this will perfect thy heart in love, and perfected in love, every binding fear will vanish away. Oh, seek to be perfected in Christ's love. It is a fathomless ocean, its breadth no mind can scan, its height no thought can scale. What I love about that devotion is he accepts the reality of the devil. He accepts the reality of depravity. He says, yes, look, not only will we fear, we feel these things and they they discourage us. And he even points to Job and David in the scripture who experienced and felt and expressed the same things. But their remedies were not to put on blinders and just dig their heels in on fearing the devil or dig their heels in on feeling their depravity. The the remedy is perfect love casts out fear. Seek to be perfected in Christ's love. And it's from there that God graciously strengthens us to continue on in our pilgrimage towards the celestial city. When he grants us eyes of faith to see the scriptural truth in the swamp of despond, to then step out, take those steps of truth out of the swamp, and to set our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Um, so yeah, I don't, it's, it's very difficult and it's very perplexing for me to get my mind around the fact that we call ourselves Christians and yet we spend so much time creating systems that serve to take our eyes off of Christ. Like, that's insanity. It's absolute insanity. It would be like saying, oh man, I'm the biggest Dallas Cowboys fan, and then filling my house with Green Bay Packers crap. And it really is crap if it's Packers, because the Packers are the Stephen Furtick of the NFL. Um, they're, w- why? That's so inconsistent. If I'm, if I'm pledging my allegiance to an entity, why then would I set about living a bunch of stuff and creating a bunch of things and surrounding myself with a bunch of things that distract me from that initial allegiance? So I don't understand this at all. It's very, very hard for me to understand that we call ourselves Christians, yet we invent numerous things to take our eyes off of Christ. And again, this goes back to previous episodes. This is what the majority of popular evangelicalism is in the business of doing. It's a bait and switch. They sort of call us into their organization through look to Christ, trust Christ, and then, once we get through the door, so to speak, they then do all this magic show and plate spinning, and it's a circus act to get our eyes off of Christ. Um, and it's despicable. I mean, for the leaders to do that, I think it's why Christ said, it's better if you lead one of my little ones astray, it's better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and leap off into the depths of the ocean, i.e. kill yourself, drown yourself. Um now, I'm not saying that we need, you know, mass suicides among church leadership. That's obviously not what I'm saying. But the, to drive home the point that Christ took this leading people astray very seriously. And, and I just have not been able to figure out why people naming the name of Christ would then set about with most of their energy to then create things that take our eyes off of Christ. It's the most counterintuitive ridiculously poorly reasoned endeavor um, that we could do with our time. Unless, of course, our main focus is to set up systems of fear to control people. And maybe I'm not giving enough, uh, maybe I'm underestimating that that's the depravity lurking under the surface of a lot of these church leaders' hearts. Um, And if I am, well, like I said previously, let the Lord change that. Um, so we must look to Christ. He must be our focus, not just to get our get out of hell ticket card, but he must be our focus in perpetuity every day, every hour. I mean, what's that song? I need thee how I need thee every hour. I need thee. Um, so yeah, I, I and I, I just I I just feel so frustrated that it's like this is your job, pastor community. Your job is to point us to Christ. That's what the Holy Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would do. This, in fact, there's a morning thought a couple days ago with Octavius Winslow where he takes that out of John 14 and he says, where, where Jesus says, "The Spirit will come; He will take of what's mine and He'll show it unto you." So the Holy Spirit is already doing this. He's taking of what is Christ's, the word, 
the glories of creation, all these things. And he's showing it unto his believers. Okay. He's showing it unto his people. And then pastors come in, they go, oh, nope, nope, nope. Time out. Time out. A little too much Christ going on here. Here, let me, let me stir up some crap to distract you with. Oh, oh, the devil, he's going to get you. Oh, your depravity. Oh, your depravity. Oh, your depravity. Whoa. So we leave feeling all suicidal or scared. No, your job's to point us to Christ. Get back to your job. Ay, ay, ay. Um, well, that took a turn for the, the dark, um, the frustration. And maybe, maybe I'll lighten it up by saying that I like The Simpsons a lot. I do like The Simpsons. Um, I think what I like the most about The Simpsons is their, uh, very articulate social commentary. And I'm sure that there's 897,000 bloggers that have made the exact same point. So, um, bask in my uniqueness of observation. <laughs> but there's one episode that, uh, stands out, um, in particular. And, uh, I was thinking about it this week there. I forget which one it was, but there was some sort of imminent death, like Armageddon was on its way. And I forget, maybe it was the movie. Maybe it was the Simpsons movie or an episode. There was, there was Armageddon that was on the way. And when the news broke, it might've been an asteroid. I want to say that maybe it was an asteroid that was going to hit. I don't remember, but there was death happening very, very short, uh, very, very quickly in the near future. And the camera is in front of the church and it pans back. And in Simpsons land, of course, you know, they can break the laws of physics when they want to. So in this particular episode, when the camera panned back, Moe's bar was right next to the church, which I have never seen that in any other episode, but hey, for this one, it worked. So the camera pans back and it's the church and Moe's bar. And when the news breaks and it's like, oh, you only have 15 minutes to live. Everyone comes rushing out of the church and runs over to Moe's bar and everyone in Moe's bar comes rushing out of Moe's bar and rushes into the church. And I laughed my head off. Um, because I think it gets at the, the nature of, of man um, that we have these allegiances and when they're not set perpetually on, on Christ, um, we, it, it, we make errors. We make errors. And, and I think that that's something that we need to consider as individual Christians. Like I've said in the past, there's, I have zero hope this is going to influence pastors. So really the purpose of this podcast is to try to not to be, not to be too dramatic, but maybe to be like a triage for jacked up Christians that have been whacked and sniped and kneecapped and stabbed in the back and lobbed depravity grenades for too long. Um, and they're just, they're beat up. They're bleeding from the small intestine. They're like, I can't take this anymore. Why? Why? Um, and they're, they're confusing why, oh man, I think I'm going to leave the church. I'm going to abandon my faith because of this. Well, don't, it's not Christ that's doing this. It's, it's negligent leaders who are carving out systems and programs to take our eyes off of Christ for whatever reason they're doing that. I don't know. Um, so really I think this podcast is, is hopefully encouraging Christians to look to Christ, Christians to, to get before the Lord, Bible open, um, prayer. And, and focus on Christ, focus on his benefits, focus on what he's done for you, focus on what he's secured, um, focus on, as Octavius Winslow says, let your eyes of faith repose where the eyes of the father complacently rest, the finished work of Christ. Um, 
Which is, you know what, is Matt, what's the, Matt groaning? Is that, is that the symptom's name? I've always thought this, and I actually need to search this. Matt, what's his name? Matt groaning? Isn't that, wasn't that the last name of one of Hitler's clowns? Not to go on a World War II tangent. Um, Third Reich leaders. Oh, Goring. Hermann Goring. So not, not the same. Not relation. Sorry, sorry, Mr. Groning. I did not mean to. It was just curious. I was curious. I was like, man, that name is the same. Holy smokes. There are a lot of Third Reich leaders. Wow, what a bunch of deplorable. Holy cow. And I thought I was well read. I only know four of these people. Yikes. Bernard Rust, have a drink, man. Way too serious. Wow, these are some... Wow, I don't even know if I want to go down that road. Oh, and then look, the last four. <laughs> the last four were so insignificant. Their profile picture is an anonymous Google egg, like a Twitter egg. Yeah, nice contributions to history there. While all of your other comrades were dangling from a noose, as they should have been at the end of the war, um, you're just a Twitter egg. Wow. I mean, maybe that that's that's actually, maybe we're onto something there. Maybe, one, I'm, I'm ashamed of my history. I thought I was well-read, and I only know the top four. Hitler, Himmler, Goebbels, and Goring. I know none of these other names. And I've read quite a bit about World War II. I thought, I don't know any of these names. That's a that's a uh, indictment against me for playing too much Clash of Clans and not reading enough. I need to read some more. Maybe I don't. These, these guys look like absolute psychopaths. Um, but I do love the fact that the last four in the list are so insignificant. They just have a Twitter egg. <laughs> Way to be a diabolical... Uh, world person going down in the history books there, Twitter egg people. Maybe maybe that's what we need to do. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, a lot of these people, they go on these psychotic, power-hungry, uh, poor-oppressing, murderous rampages in order to find some sort of fame and notoriety. Um, I mean, imagine committing to the Third Reich back in the day. Oh, Heil Hitler, I'm going to commit to this guy. And then, what, 80 years later, you're a Twitter egg? I love it. Like that's that's poetic justice right there. So maybe what we need to do with all these modern day psychopaths is just Twitter egg them from the very get go. Like when some nut job shoots up a place or some loony bins does something deplorable and kills people, instead of slapping their grills all over uh, the interwebs and talking about them for 24, 48, or 72 hours, let's just twigger, tw tw twigger, let's just Twitter egg them from the get go. Hey. Hey, look at this Twitter egg. He was a clown. He's dead. Good riddance. See you later. Um, it's actually not a bad idea. Maybe we should Twitter egg pastors too. <laughs> uh, Furtick would still find a way around it. He would Photoshop some little chicken biceps on that Twitter egg. They'd be bursting through the shell. He'd be like, I am steroided. Um... <laughs> 
Twitter egg people. Let's just Twitter egg them. Twitter egg. That's not a bad idea. Wow. Well, I've got a couple things to do. I need to turn off Clash of Clans and Fortnite and read some more World War II history. Because I'm not kidding you. There's probably 35 plus. When I, when I typed in Third Reich leaders, there's probably 35 plus in this little um, slider bar. And I only know four. Now that begs the question, do I even really want to know about these guys? Because, I mean, if they were, if the 31 others were following the four that I know about, they're probably not worth reading about. They're just evil, diabolical lemmings um, who deserved what they got, and especially the four that got Twitter-egged. They probably got, they probably got noosed and then Twitter-egged, which is even better. Um, so, there we go. What, why, why am I in the Third Reich? How did this go from... Trusting Christ. Oh, Goring. Gor groaning. Matt Groaning. Uh, Twitter guy. I think what I like most about him, I don't know if you saw that this week, but some uh, self-important, you know, millennial documentarian guy was like, ooh, the problem with Apu, and, or Abu, whatever his name is. And so uh, they, the social media, when I say they, it was like a bunch of, you know, liberal bots um, being programmed to try to sway public opinion on some topic. Um, they were trying to get everybody mad at the Simpsons because the you know the Indian um, convenience store owner is is stereotypical. I was like, every freaking character in that show is stereotypical. Get over yourself, you self-important millennial, trying to capitalize on your fake outrage. Like it's okay to not be outraged all the time, says the man screaming incoherently into the microphone about church things every week. <laughs> I'm not outraged. I'm I'm just sad and hurt. My feelings are uh, very, very distraught. Um, no, I'm I'm kidding. I, I'm trying to exhort you Christians, exhort you fellow brothers and sisters to look to Christ. Um, but what I like about it is their response. If you you need to go online and look at the response that they they gave because all these Twitter bots were saying, oh, you know, retire Abu or Apu from the show. You need to write him out of there. And Twitter and Simpsons' response was basically like, "Oh yeah, hey look, we did this character twenty some years ago, and now it's become politically incorrect, and we might deal with him, but probably not." All right, thanks. Have a good day. I was like, "Yes." Way to not kowtow to a bunch of algorithm, algorithmic, algorithmic, algorithmic. That sounds better. It's not the right word, but it sounds better. Algorithm, algorithmic. It's al, whatever that word is. Don't, uh, don't, don't uh, shrink back from a bunch of algorithms pretending to be real people to try to persuade and, and sway public's opinion on these topics. So thumbs up to you, Mr. Groaning. Uh, that's it. I'm probably over 50 minutes. Man, this was a long, long-winded uh, thing. But most of that was Octavius Winslow's fault because that devotion was a little too long for our Clash of Clans attention span. Peace.